Wrong. <clears throat> this is all wrong. You Pharisees got it all wrong. He was supposed to lead our revolution, bring about the salvation from these Gentiles. He was supposed to be the spark, the catalyst. He was the man, the Messiah. We were ready. People were ready. That angry crowd in the garden, Peter had his sword out in an instant. Took an ear, Peter did. Took an ear. But then he rebuked them. No more of this, he called. And the others listened. Our moment had finally arrived. A little blood, a little persuasion, and the crowds would have turned. It would have followed him into a new world. But he stopped them. He even healed that dog's ear. Then he asked, Am I leading a rebellion? Yes, I wanted to shout. Yes, again and again I've told you so. Now act on it. But instead he surrendered meekly. And we... We twelve, we fled again and again. How many times has he told us to come to free us? How many? He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, he read in the temple. And then he declared, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But the Romans are still here. The nations are pressed upon us. We are not free. He's a son of David. How often did he say he would rebuild his father's kingdom? Imagine our boundaries stretching to those that were set by Solomon. A land free of outsiders. Once again, a land promised flowing with milk and honey. But again and again, he missed the moment. Not four days ago, he mounted a colt as it was prophesied. He rode into the city as it was prophesied. He came to them, their king, as it was prophesied. The crowd shouted to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. They all knew the signs, and they knew the scripture. Hosanna, they called, save us, save us. And you leaders, you Pharisees, you knew too. Teacher, rebuke your disciples, you called, terrified of Roman wrath. But he knew where we stood. I tell you, he answered, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. Yes! At last, we were on the path to freedom. But then again, he faltered. We were on the path to the temple's east gate, the gate everybody knew that the Messiah would come through. The crowd, frenzied, they urged him to act on his claims and fulfill the prophecy. They deafened us with their shouts, save us! He rode past the gate without so much of a glance. And instead, he stopped at the northern gate, a gate defiled by sheep's dung and the stench of death. Only death comes from the north. Only sacrifices pass through that door. Only meek lambs being led to the slaughter. And tonight, we gathered for the Passover, and our king, our son of David, our Messiah, he stripped, wrapped a towel around his waist, And then he washed our feet. What sort of king plays at being a servant? What sort of savior kneels before his disciples and washes the filth from between their toes? Again and again he missed that moment. But then it was was then. 
and I saw him groveling before us, I realized that it was I. I must act. I, we needed to know if he was the actual Messiah. If he refused, then I would force the issue. I would spark the revolution. And we would see if we had offered our faith foolishly. It was easy enough. You Pharisees were looking for a way to bring him down. We all knew that. A word in the right ear, a plan whispered discreetly, and you thought you had eliminated a problem. Well, I knew. I knew that I had started something bigger than any of us could imagine. And to think... (laughs) You hypocrite fools. You paid 30 pieces of silver to start the revolution that you so fear. You Pharisees, you're the first to fill our coffers. Then it all went wrong. There's no revolt. He's been eliminated. Or he will be soon. It was you. You condemned him to die. Through my word, my kiss, you've caught, tried, and condemned him. He knew. You knew. He knew what I planned. I don't know how. I don't know how he learned. But at supper, he told us that one of us would betray him. It's a strong word, but I thought then that he understood. After all, he handed me the bread dipped in wine. He must have understood my plan. He must have known the test before him. He must have. So then why didn't he act? Why? Now he's condemned. You condemn. No, it was I. Almighty king in heaven, what have I done? It's just an innocent man. Instead of rebellion, I have this blood on my hands. Instead of Messiah, I have 30 pieces of silver. They're no use now. What good is a revolution without a leader? He can't save us from the grave. I've sinned. Betrayal, he called it. Yes. Betrayal and blood for 30 pieces of silver. Good morning. Thanks, Gage, for that. Um, you know what? I've known, I've known Gage a long time. That, that's Gage, by the way, the guy that just played Judas. Uh, I've known him a long time, since he was a little guy with, uh, with no facial hair. And now he's just a little guy with lots of facial hair. Uh, I, was, uh, I was reflecting on how long I've known Gage, and it goes all the way back to... Um, you know, pre-2006, but 2006, uh, 2004 is probably when I met Gage, but 2006, uh, we went on a Mexico trip together to go build some, some houses, and we were down in Mexico, uh, and building the houses, and, uh, and the kids, they typically come with some, some pesos with some Mexican money uh, to, you know, purchase tacos and some gifts and, uh, you know, stuff that they're going to take back and, uh, with them, and so... It, uh, we're coming back to the American side of the border, and there's the big lineup at the border, and there's uh, often these merchants that are selling things to uh, the people going back into America, and uh, you can buy them for American dollars or pesos, uh, Mexican dollars, and Gage uh, realizes that he's got a handful of pesos uh, that he has yet to spend, 
And he's like, I got all these pesos. I got to spend them now or else I'm never, I'm not going to be able to use them. Uh, and so uh, uh, I said, Gage, pass your pesos up. We'll, I'll get you something. Uh, I think he was like expecting cheros or, you know, something like that. Um, and, and I see like this, this three foot uh, long uh, plaque of Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. And I said, that's perfect. Um, and so I, I barter with the guy selling the, the plaque, and I spent uh, the rest of Gage's money on the Last Supper plaque. Uh, I've got this amazing picture that I couldn't find of, of him in the back seat uh, holding this plaque, and he's, he's you know, in the back of the 15-passenger van with his buddies, and he carried that plaque, and he brought that plaque all the way back to Canada. Uh, and so he was faithful to hang, hang on to it. Uh, but the, this Last Supper... Uh, you can see pictures of it, uh, usually Da Vinci's painting, but there's other renditions of it as well, uh, all over the world. You go to Mexico, uh, Canada, Europe, uh, there's this scene that happens in the gospel narratives where the disciples and Jesus are in this room having this moment, uh, and it's a beautiful moment, but it's a haunting moment. Uh, and there's something powerful that's happening there that has captured the questions and curiosity and imagination of people uh, through the centuries. Uh, and this morning, we want to focus uh, kind of on that moment. We want to focus on the character of Judas in that moment. Uh, and, uh, and so this was a, you know, a picture of Da Vinci's Last Supper, similar to the plaque that Gage would have been holding uh, uh, and hovering underneath uh, and, and so this scene, you can see that, that Judas is there. If you, if you can see him in the picture, uh, on your left, he's, uh, he's kind of two spots over, uh, even though Peter is the guy who's leaning in behind him. Uh, you can see Peter leaning into John behind him, but, but Judas is the one that's there two spots over, kind of leaning away from Christ. Uh, and uh, there's a lot going on in this painting. Uh, but this moment between Judas and Jesus is is a powerful one. They're, they're celebrating the Passover meal. Uh, and so earlier in their, in their tradition, in their history, God had delivered them from uh, the oppression from the Egyptian people. And he, he had uh, sent plagues on the Egyptians and Pharaoh to let God's people go. And there was a final plague. And the final plague, the 10th plague, uh, was one where all of the firstborns in the land were going to die. And so uh, God told his people to put the blood of a, dan- of a lamb on the doorpost of your house. Uh, and then the angel of death will pass over the house and, the, and then nobody in your, your home will die. Uh, and so God delivered them in that moment, and then brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so they celebrated this Passover meal every year, remembering what God had done, how God had saved them, how God had delivered them. And, and so the, Jesus and his disciples uh, are getting together to celebrate the Passover meal uh, that's been celebrated for hundreds of years. They're remembering what God has done. But Jesus is reframing in this moment the Passover meal. He's saying there is something new that's going to happen. We remember what God has done, but God's going to do something new. That what's about to happen is a new kind of Passover. God saved you in the past, and it was a bit of a temporary salvation, but God's going to do an eternal salvation. That God is actually going to deliver you and and save you. Um, But they had an idea of what that meant, and Jesus had another idea of what that meant. You know, their thinking was that, that God was going to save them from the oppression of the Romans. But Jesus was going to save them from the oppression of sin and death and the devil. 
And so he reframes, reframes the whole thing in this moment, in this meal. Uh, the disciples don't get it, and Judas for sure doesn't get it. So right before the Passover meal, there's this event that thickens the plot before they get into that room together. And the text says that one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So Judas has been following Jesus for two to three years. We know this. He's been a disciple of Jesus. And he decides in this moment that the one that he's been following, the one that he loves, the one that's his friend, the one that he had hopes and dreams that he put on him, decides in this moment that he's going to betray Jesus. And we should be asking the question, why? Why would Judas do this in this moment? Betray his friend. And often what's assumed is that Judas was just interested in money. He had 30 pieces of silver that was offered to him, and he's like, uh, maybe it's worth it for me. And I think that narrative is too simple. Judas didn't betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. If Judas, if the only thing that Judas wanted was a little bit of cash in life, there was lots of ways that he could have got that amount of money. The reason that Judas betrayed Jesus was because he had a set of expectations on Jesus that Jesus didn't meet. And when he realized, as he watched the trajectory of what was happening, that Jesus wasn't going to do what he thought Jesus should do as the king, as the Messiah, as the savior who was supposed to save them, then he's going to cut his losses. You know, 30, uh, 30 coins of silver, 30 pieces of silver is better uh, than nothing. And so he cuts his losses, he takes the money, but the money wasn't the reason that he betrayed Jesus. And last week we talked about, uh, if you're here last Sunday, we talked about the expectations that people had on what this Messiah, what this king was going to do. And Jesus didn't meet any of those expectations. Jesus said he was going to deliver them, and they thought he was going to deliver them, but it looked different than what they thought. And so one by one, the disciples were coming to grips with their unmet expectations. And we, we think that Judas is unique, uh, but he's not. He wasn't the only one that was disappointed. The other disciples were disappointed. Other disciples left Jesus. We know the story of Peter. Uh, Je- Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me. And Jesus says, there's no way I'm going to deny you. And he says, no, you're going to deny me. Jesus had expectations on Jesus even before we get to this moment uh, where, where Peter is telling Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross to die. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because Peter, you don't understand. You're thinking in a worldly way, but I'm doing something different than you're expecting. Even at, in a moment after the Last Supper, when the soldiers were taking away uh, Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off a, a soldier's ear uh, because he doesn't understand the moment of what's happening, and Jesus isn't meeting his expectations. And so we know that Judas is not the only one who has unmet expectations. He wasn't the only one that was disappointed. But have you ever noticed that nobody names their kid Judas? I mean, I feel like he gets a little bit of bad rap. And, and, and I was actually, I actually Googled this. I was like, you know, is there anybody in the world named Judas? Uh, and, uh, and I found out that in the country of Spain, it's actually illegal to name your kid Judas. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I know lots of Peters, Johns, Matthews, uh, but I don't know any Judases. And if your name is Judas, I'm sorry. Uh, but we have 
kind of excluded Judas as the exception. But we need to recognize that Judas was not the only disciple that turned his back on Jesus. Judas was not the only disciple that was disappointed. You know, Judas was the first disciple, and he kind of set in motion the arrest of Jesus, and then which led to his crucifixion. But I think we've written off Judas more easily than we've written off the others. Judas had expectations on God, on Jesus, and they were unmet. But so did the other disciples. And in some way, Judas and the other disciples all hit this point in the gospel story where uh, they could all say it wasn't supposed to be this way. In their perspective, it wasn't supposed to be this way. It was supposed to be different. God was going to save us and it was going to look like this. Jesus was the one. He was the Messiah. I believed that I gave my life to it. I left my family, my friends to follow him. And then here we are. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Jesus was the first one. But in the next 24 hours, all the disciples would eventually say and feel some kind of sentiment similar to that. It wasn't supposed to be this way. And I wonder, have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? When you think about the last few years, have you ever had this feeling that, you know, it wasn't supposed to be this way? It's not supposed to be this way. That diagnosis that death of a loved one, that loss that you had, the unrealized dream, the healing that you're waiting for, the relationships that you had hoped would be restored that are now worse than they were. It wasn't supposed to be this way. And I think we have more actually in common with Judas than we might be led to think. We have more in common with those disciples than we realize. It was this, dis- it was this dis- disappointment, this, this unmet expectation, these longings that weren't met, the hope that Judas had that wasn't realized. This is the backdrop of this beautiful but intense meal that Jesus and his disciples are having. And so after Judas decides he's going to betray Jesus, they come together at this meal. And it says, when evening came, Jesus re- was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son, woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him said, surely you don't mean me, rabbi. Jesus answered, you have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it and eat. This is my body. Then he broke a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink it, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And what I find fascinating is in this moment, um, the Gospels all say something very similar, that Jesus gave it to all of them. Here in uh, Matthew, it says that drink from it, all of you. Judas had already come to this point where he realized, where he made the decision that he was going to betray Jesus. He comes to the table, 
and Jesus extends the bread and the wine to Judas, which represent his broken body that it was about to happen, his spilt blood, his shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. And his betrayer is sitting there at the table with him, and Jesus invites him to take the bread and to take the wine. Jesus takes the bread and looks at Judas and says, take this and eat it. This is my body broken for you. He takes the wine, take this, drink it. This is my blood spilt for you. Meanwhile, you can think how is Judas processing this in light of what he had just decided. It was offered to Judas even though Jesus knew that what would happen. But Judas didn't understand what would happen. Judas didn't realize the significance of what Jesus was doing in this moment. And, G- and Judas starts to have this realization as the plot unfolds. And we read in Matthew 27, it says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Je- Jesus executed. So they bound him led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. This, to me, is one of the most heart-wrenching passages in all of Scripture. Judas witnesses Jesus being condemned to die, to be punished, to be crucified for sins that Jesus didn't commit. And very literally, Jesus is being crucified for the sins that Judas committed. The Bible said that Judas experienced remorse, and the word remorse, it comes from the same root word in the original language as the word repentance. Judas, in this moment, attempts to undo what he did. He tried to return the money. He feels remorse. He tries to undo what he has done. Have you ever had things that you've done in your life that you wish that you could undo? Have you ever made decisions that you wish you could take back? Have you ever acted in ways that you thought, man, if I could go and relive that moment again, I would have done it way, way differently? We can learn something from Judas, actually, because he understands in this moment the gravity of his own sin, the gravity of what he's done. He understands in this moment how his actions and choices have impacted Jesus. And he's overwhelmed with sorrow. He's overwhelmed with remorse. He doesn't know what to do with it. Judas knows that Jesus is innocent and he is not. But things go sideways, and and we can learn that part from Judas, but things go sideways for Judas when he listens to the religious leaders who tell him, that's your responsibility. And so Judas actually tries to take on the responsibility of his own sin, the responsibility of his own decisions. He doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know what to do with that weight. And so he hangs himself. And for many of us, or for some of us who have been close to someone who's decided to take their own life, we know 
the deep sadness of someone who decides to do that, who decides to make a type of decision that can't be undone. I know people in my own life that have made that decision. And everything in me just cries out, you don't have to do that. You don't have to make a permanent decision based on a temporary circumstance. Judas didn't understand that Jesus was willing to take on that responsibility and that Judas didn't have to take that responsibility on himself. You know, I want to scream out when I, when I read this part of the text, I want to scream out, Judas, just wait, just wait a little longer. If you only wait just a few more days, you'll see that this is not the end of the story. If you just wait a little bit longer, you'll see that the permanent decision you're about to make is based on a very temporary circumstance, but you think that the situation is permanent, but it's not. You think that Jesus going to the cross to be crucified is the end of the story, but it's the beginning of a new story, and I just want you to hold on just a little bit longer so that you can experience the beginning of the new story. Everything in me just wants to shake Judas in this moment. Don't do something permanent when what is happening is only temporary. Feel remorse, yes. Feel overwhelmed by your own sin, yes. But then look at the Christ who's taking on the responsibility. You don't have to take it on yourself. Of course, Judas wouldn't be the only one that would turn his back on Jesus. As we've mentioned, the other disciples did. And most notably, the other famous disciple that turned his back on Jesus was Peter. In that moment where Jesus is saying, someone's going to deny me, Peter says, it's not going to be me. You know, overconfident Peter. Overpromises, underdelivers under all the time. Uh, it's not going to be me. Jesus says, you know, it is actually going to be you. You're going to deny me three times. Never, Lord. No, it will. When you hear the rooster crow, you'll know. And so Peter has these great aspirations to follow Jesus, but he too is confused when Jesus handed over, when Jesus is going to the cross, and he starts following Jesus from a distance, and then it gets to the point where people are asking him, aren't you with him? Aren't you, with, aren't you one of his followers? Aren't you one of his disciples? He says, no. And he betrays Jesus in his own way in those moments, denies him three separate times. And in Luke 22, it says, this is the third denial. When somebody asks, Peter, don't you know Jesus? He says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed third time. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him and said, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And so here's my question is what's the difference between Peter and Judah? I thought about this many times over the years. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? They both betrayed Jesus in some form. They both betrayed him. They were both filled with remorse. Peter wept bitterly. What's the difference? Jesus gave the bread and the wine both to Peter and to Judas. Jesus gave the bread and the wine both to his betrayer and the one that would deny him. Why do we name our kids Peter and we don't name our kids Judas? 
I think the difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter waited and Judas didn't. Peter waited and Judas didn't. I wonder how the story would have changed if Judas would have waited. So now we come back to the Last Supper, this this moment. Jesus gives them the bread, the wine, and he tells them, eat this in remembrance of me. And then he says, I won't drink this cup with you again until I come back and we drink it together in my Father's kingdom. And we call it the Last Supper, but this is actually the First Supper. Jesus tells us to continue to come together to eat the bread, to drink the wine. That wasn't the Last Supper. It was just the first one. And every time you come together, he says to remember. And why do we remember? We remember what he's done. Why? Because we eat the bread, which represents his body. We drink the juice or the wine, which represents his blood. And we're reminded that his presence is with us. That he's with us while we wait. And in many ways, we are like those first disciples who are waiting on God. And it's his encouragement to us that we are to be faithful, that he is with us while we wait. And in a moment, we're going to take the bread and take the juice together. Uh, But before we do that, I want to invite you to reflect. Reflect on the fact that we are not that much different than Peter and Judas And ask the question to yourself, you know, where are you disappointed? Where do you feel remorse in your life? Where do you have unmet expectations on God where you're waiting on him to show up and he hasn't shown up yet? Where do you have an expectation on Jesus and he's disappointing you? Because Jesus didn't call this the, it's not the final supper. It isn't. We've called it that. This is the first supper. That was the first supper. And now he tells us to continue to have this meal together, to remember what he's done, but to be faithful to him in our waiting. So during this next song, I invite you to reflect. Um, I'll come back up and I'll lead us into a time of communion. I invite you to close your eyes even in this moment and to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to meet with you. Lord, there's places where we feel disappointed in you. We're honest. Lord, we think of the last few years, maybe some of us in this room have wondered, where are you? I'm disappointed. I had this expectation. I had dreams. Things aren't supposed to be this way. And we recognize in this moment on Good Friday that we join the echo of the disciples and followers of you through the ages who have whispered those words, things aren't supposed to be this way. Lord, I thank you that you meet that disappointment saying you're right. right but you invite us to wait so that we, we look forward to that day when we are with you in the fullness of the kingdom 
But God, in these moments, we choose to wait. We give you our disappointment. But we also come to you with, in light of the things that we've done where we feel like we've disappointed you and we feel remorse. And we thank you that we don't have to take responsibilities for our own sins. We thank you, Jesus, that you took that responsibility. May we be overwhelmed, yes, with remorse, but also with gratitude because of how you have met that need for us. You've taken that responsibility for us so that we can have a future and a hope. we stand in your presence uh, this morning with a clear picture of the, the goodness of God with the love of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we, we sit in that place and we thank you. We thank you that you paid it all. And, Lord, we know that there's a, a full picture of the gospel already today, but we look forward to Sunday when we gather again to celebrate. And so, Thank you that we can gather and be together today. Amen. Thank you for coming, and uh, we will see you on Sunday. Services at 9 and 11. Have a great day.